Last week, uh, perhaps you uh, followed, we were asking a question, are we doing all we can with our gifts and our talents for the glory of God? And today we ask a next question, which is, what am I doing with what I gain from my gifts and talents for the glory of a generous God? Am I saving all I can from what I gain in a God-honoring way? The small town that I grew up in had an annual fall fair. Each year we were let out of school to participate in the local parade and to spend the day on the rides, and especially, from my perspective, play the carnival games. Anyone love those? Yeah, what a wonderful way to waste money. I saved, I saved my paper route money for the most glorious of days. And every year, some kid would win some enormous stuff thing on steroids that was the envy of all the other schleps of us walking around, and it would smile mockingly at us, that big thing. And so we were drawn. We have three balls for a dollar to play this child's version of the fall fair, fall fair slots. Now, no one ever considered, it seemed, that the prize of great size had taken a kid's lifetime earnings to win, that you could have picked it up at a store for like three quarters less the price. But I was determined that I would win and gain the fleeting awe of my fickle peers because I had my savings and my baseball skills, which were surely enough to win something I had zero need for. In less than 10 minutes, my money was gone, evaporated, my self-esteem destroyed. And if I'd just been a little bit bigger, I would have given that amusement park worker who kept you know, baiting me with false platitudes. I had to give him a piece of my mind. But I learned something. I learned that saving money only to throw it away is not very smart. We can gain only to throw away. God's generous nature invites us and awakens us to give God first place in all things. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is first in every aspect of life, including work and money, the gaining of all you can and the saving of all you can in a Jesus-centered way. But what does that look like? Do you recall last week's shrewd parable from Luke chapter 16? Jesus pointed us to the lavish generosity of God who welcomes sinners and calls us to maximize our gifts and our opportunities and relationships for the glory of God. We work for the best boss ever, right? We work for the best boss ever, and so let us gain all we can and invest in that which lasts. But what do we do once we've gained? How do we avoid this human tendency to squander, wander, and worry? We can be like 10-year-olds squandering at a fall fair. That disappointed feeling, perhaps you felt it even as an adult, that disappointing feeling of having wasted a good thing. And it feels yucky. You know that feeling? Or we can be wanderers who love money more than we love God, prone to a hypocritical disconnect between our use of money and our declared values and beliefs. Or then we can be worriers about finances. A Scotiabank survey revealed just this week, by the way, revealed that on average, Canadians spend two hours a day worrying about finances. Two hours a day. If you're between the ages of 18 and 24, you worry the most, according to this survey. 2.4 hours a day. 
People over 55 worry less. 1.4 hours a day on average. Good for you. A great reason, by the way, that we live as a multi-generational church that actually lives out being multi-generational, don't you think? Where those at the various ages learn from and disciple each other in the realities of life. So squanderers, wanderers, and worriers, which would you be most likely voted as? A squanderer, a wanderer, or a worrier? What would you say about yourself? We serve a most generous God, so surely we can increasingly move away from squandering and wandering and worrying, no? And let's gain some 30,000 foot perspective. What is your life in numbers? What's your life in numbers? Write down or think about that amount that is yours each month and where it goes. Just like come up with the number. You might have a general idea, hopefully a more specific one. You have income, expenses, savings, disposable income. Now, how much of it is God's? And is there even such a thing as disposable income? King David had a clear perspective. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. First Chronicles chapter 29, King David said, Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Everything is God's. There is no such thing for a believer as disposable income. Scripture does affirm saving money and owning private property, yet constantly reminds us that we are only and always stewards of a gift. We are always recipients, never owners. We steward the Creator's world and the assignments and the amounts that He entrusts to us. God's saving work in Jesus Christ transforms us into his spirit-filled handiwork. And so we gain all we can, but differently than we once did. And we save differently too, caretakers maximizing what isn't ours to begin with. Let's turn to another parable of Jesus this morning, Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Follow along or listen as the first hearers would have. They would have just listened to the story that Jesus tells. So someone in a crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? And then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You've plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your life will demand, be demanded from you. 
then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for him themselves, but is not rich toward God. It's the word of the Lord. The parable is a response to a question about personal rights. Did you notice that? Jesus is asked to resolve a family dispute about inheritance. It seems rights have been violated. Money is dividing a family. And that's never happened since, has it? <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. Money can be family kryptonite, can't it? Wonderful, loving people can turn into bears and badgers the moment money gets involved. I'm sure some of you have experienced this. I remember finding 35 cents in the grass during an elementary school recess. Well, actually, it was my cousin who found it. And we loved each other. We spent tons of time together, but I was older and 35 cents was a big deal. And I recall this rush of desire that came over me. We were Smeagol and Deagle in the Lord of the Rings. And I pushed him and I grabbed the ring. I, I mean the coins. I grabbed the coins from his chubby little hands and I ran off. And no bag of chips or whatever I bought ever tasted worse. Money can awaken strange mysteries in us. But isn't there a, an injustice here in this story? Surely Jesus of all people, should correct this family injustice and act. But, and this is the humble reality, Leslie Newbigin's great quote, our problem, as seen in the light of the gospel, is that each of us overestimates what is due him compared to what is due our neighbor. We overestimate what is due us. Jesus wisely avoids the family court trap here. Instead, he goes after the heart. A new heart, you see, is the only hope for this family's reconciliation. Defending our rights can open a doorway to many evils, self-righteousness, self-justification, self-pity, and of course, greed. And so Jesus says in verse 15, be on guard, watch out for all kinds of greed. And so Jesus then tells the parable, well, there's something really fascinating. What was it in the parable that has actually produced the rich man's abundance? Did you notice? What does it say in verse 16? The ground, the ground produced. The parable takes us up right away to the 30,000 foot perspective. We are recipients and stewards. What should have produced humility and generosity instead produces pride. And he decides on his own, he's going to build bigger barns. And in a Middle Eastern culture, this type of decision would have, should have been communal, something he would have discussed with others and especially his family. Gain, though, has turned him upon himself. Wealth woos us. Wealth woos us toward isolation. Upward mobility tempts towards self-reliance, walls and gates, not needing others, not needing God. And the man's language is telling 
in the parable. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns. There I will store my surplus. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain. Just take it easy. Do you see it? Do you feel it? It's kind of yucky. Gain can also move us toward the irrational because what is he trying to actually store? It's grain and grain is perishable. He can build bigger barns, but it's going to eventually rot. And his gifts, which he employed with great skill, he's even ready to set aside. Take it easy. Call it quits. And God speaks with disturbing clarity in verse 20. And what does God call him? You fool. You fool. Tonight you will die. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And we're back at the question of inheritance, aren't we? We're back at that question. And Jesus is pointing back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, which says this, I hated all things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. And so Jesus peers into the soul of the brother crying injustice and personal rights. And he basically is saying, you may end up with the inheritance, but what if you're just a fool? It's all God's. And if it comes your way, it is a gift of God. What will guarantee you're not a squandering fool? The rights you demand expose the true you and it may cost you your soul. What if there is an accountability for what we've gained when we are always and only stewards of what is never really ours to begin with? Now notice, Jesus never says at any point or even implies in the parable that abundance is wrong. He's not criticizing the man's wealth. But he does show that the heart corrupted by rights and selfish desires will squander not only what is given, but even one's own dignity as a steward of God's generous gifts. And at the end of the day, we'll all die and leave it all behind. Will we die as fools? And so Jesus says in verse 21, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Big barns or no barns is not the point. The point is, are you rich toward God? To squander is to wander, to become less than we were created and redeemed for. You may win your rights, by the way. You may gain the world and you may lose your soul. And when our souls are a mess, wandering uncertainly, guess what we tend to turn to? Worry. We turn to worry. Which moves us further into this passage to verse 22. And then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn and yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now let's just consider what Jesus has said. Do not worry. At the root of this guy who is fighting for his inheritance is worry and fear. But if we're rich toward God and not a fool, if we're gaining and saving, we have what we have as a gift, maximizing it for the good rule of a generous God, then worry blows away like the mist. Jesus has this wonderful line in verse 23. Don't you know that life is more? Is that such a great line? I actually think this is what we should have going on in the back of our mind every time we watch a commercial. Life is more. Life is more. Life is more. Life is more. And why? Because we are worth more than we've yet imagined. Your worth is actually much greater than whatever the bottom line is at the end of your bank account. God looks after birds, they don't build barns, and you're more valuable than a bird. We are of such worth that God gave his own son. And if you ever doubt your worth, look at the cross. Jesus is the sign of God being rich toward us. And we are invited to join in his act of saving and reconciling the world. And which, by the way, includes the wealth of the world toward himself and his purposes. And so we look at the flowers. They simply grow true to their identity, don't they? And so grow true to your dignified intent as one redeemed by sin and filled with the Holy Spirit. Live true to the direction that the Spirit leads. And then comes the great and disturbing question in verse 26. Why do you worry? Yeah, why? No, seriously, why? Why do you worry? What truly is the root of your worry? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says that God has spoken. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Do you know the context of that quote in Hebrews 13? It's entirely in the context of money. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you is preceded by these words. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for God has spoken. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The rich fool, you see, is the poster child of discontent. 
The fool complaining about inheritance was focused on content, but he is not content. Oh, and so many of our lives are trapped by this. Our eyes focused on content. Worrying because a bank tells me to won't add a single day to your life. And Jesus says in verses 29 to 31 then, don't set your heart to run after stuff, but seek God's kingdom. Because running after money proves very costly. The life of ease that we chase can turn into a house of cards and a barn of straw. Chasing stuff will produce a distaste for the exclusive claims of Jesus on your life, don't you know? We need the good news, the gospel reminder all the time that we are to seek God's rule and God's ways because God has acted in history, in Jesus Christ, to redeem you from sin. And if he will take that great debt from you, he will provide for you. He'll look after you. And guess what? The idols never look after us. In Colossians 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, to beware of greed because greed is idolatry. And the idols will never look after you. They seduce and they pillage. But God knows what you need and his promises are true. Gain all you can, save all you can, and remember who it's from and who it's for. And serving God and gaining and saving, don't you see, we rebel against the tyranny of mammon. When we save with a gaze toward investing in God's goodness, we are literally, and I want you to think about this so seriously, we are literally rescuing what could be used for unrighteousness and evil and redeeming it. Do you get that? Every dollar gets recycled somewhere, doesn't it? So $100 here, $5,000 there, $5 million, all rescued to be redeployed, gathered to be stewarded in the ripples of calling that God has assigned to his children. We need the gospel of a generous God to reorient us, we who so easily squander and wander and worry. Do not be afraid, little flock, says Jesus because your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And remember that the initial question is about what? Inheritance. <laughs> and Jesus says, when you know the generosity and the grandeur of your heavenly father, when you seek his kingdom, not your own rights, you become an heir of an even greater inheritance, an heir of the one who owns it all. Do you realize that? If your eyes are only on whatever it is your parents managed to slug together, you're thinking way too small because you're an heir of the kingdom of God. And so then rather than gather for ourselves, Jesus says in verse 33, sell your possessions. Now remember the parable, put it into context. What's the parable? The rich fool is building bigger barns to hoard what should be sold. Don't pile up what rots and moths destroy. Gain and save so you can sell and give to the needy. Do justly. Remember the poor. Lay down your rights and become a blesseder, a blesser, because generosity never wears out. And there's this sobering reality check in verse 34 where your treasure is. That's where you find your heart. And the brother demanding his rights risked being the fool. If your heart 
is in the barn, it will probably stink. And the bigger the barn, the bigger the stink. Listen, if I'm doing the same thing, except on a bigger scale, if I'm doing the same thing with what I've gained today as I did with a ki- as a kid in a playground or at a fall fair, that says a lot, doesn't it? It says I have not matured. Money, you see, is the currency of the heart. If I follow in my life, if I follow how I save and invest what I gain, I will discover where my treasure is. Am I a king's heir or a jester in a fool's barnyard? So what does it look like to save all you can from a Christ-centered perspective? I want to, we, we talked about John Wesley last week who, who uh, inspired Arthur Guinness. John Wesley had a few things to say about saving from a Christ-centered perspective. I'm going to highlight three of them. Number one, save all you can by avoiding spending on your wants. Spending on our wants is so easy, isn't it? (laughs) It's why there's the impulse goods at the checkout. (laughs) But it actually keeps us from saving all we can for the glory of God. And it is our capitulation to wants that contributes to the growing cloud of worry that so many people live under. Are we aware of this? Our capitulation to want continues to grow our worry. The mind governed by Christ will not simply spend because it can, but will spend in correlation to that which meets personal need and enhances the ability to respond to the needs of others around me. How are your spending habits preventing your escape from the clutches of debt and servitude to money? Listen, we're, we always want, like a stuffed banana at stero- on steroids at a fall fair. But a want continually caved to just wants more. It's never satisfied, is it? But it is beneath our human dignity and the stunning truth that we are temples of the Holy Spirit if we live as if drooling before an endless smorgasbord of want-satisfying gluttony is the is living it up. Keep in step with the Spirit of God that lives in you. Learn to say no. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Second, save all you can by avoiding spending on that which feeds your pride. This is what Wesley said. Because pride is the first great sin. It enthrones self as God. It's why money is so dangerous, actually, because it can feed pride like almost nothing else. Using God-given gifts to maximize gain in order to to feed pride is illogical, isn't it? If I use the gifts that God has given me to gain in order to feed pride, it is spiritually illogical. And if you spend on pride, what happens when it's gone? What happens if you lose your job? What happens if poverty comes upon you? What happens if the market crashes? As a believer, your identity is in Christ, not in some propped up, self-made image. He doesn't care what you wear, but he cares for the one who wears it. And third, and this is a fascinating thought, save all you can 
for future generations. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 says this, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, not even their own kids, their children's children. Save so much, save so that as much of the world's wealth as possible is placed in the hands of those who are led by the Spirit of God. Invest wisely in what will grow justice, not just dollars. And in this broken world, a lot of gain can be made unethically and through injustice. Wesley encouraged parents. This is a fascinating thought. Wesley encouraged parents not to give their kids everything or simply champion what is expedient. Rather, teach them how to steward their lives under the lordship of Jesus to gain all they can, save all they can, and give all they can. And we must give our children the ability to think through the stewardship of life because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that new reality has changed everything. Wanting everything for the next generation, we risk giving them nothing except maybe worry. And so Wesley counseled the very wise investment of inheritance. He even said this, by the way, if you see that your kids are foolish with money, then leave enough so that they are not a burden to society, but do not entrust them with the bulk of your gaining and saving because they may waste it on pride, want, and injustice. Because, by the way, if we just thoughtlessly pass on and save wealth, that would make us an investor in squanderers and wanderers and even perhaps the champion of fools. And that calls, by the way, those of us waiting for an inheritance to wake up. Because what will guarantee that I am not the fool? <laughs> 